going back on dominoes, I remember this past summer, um, Draymond came over the day after I tore my ACL game six. This man didn't let me win one game of dominoes. <laughs> and I had a freaking torn out knee. I was like, come on, man, can I win one game? Yeah, 0 oh 5. And I still have an outstanding death from that, but uh, that hurt, man. That guy's ruthless. I'm there on crutches, and he still won't even let me get a win. Welcome to Needing Dough, the podcast presented by Uninterrupted and Chase. I'm your host, Andrew Hawkins, a.k.a. Hawk. And on Needing Dough, we share stories from pro athletes and champions discussing the financial lessons they've learned throughout their personal and professional lives. From that first life-changing paycheck to how they manage their money today. Uninterrupted CEO Maverick Carter guides us through these exclusive interviews, and we have an incredible lineup for you this season. As a former NFL wide receiver myself and Columbia Business School graduate, I'm here to give you my personal perspective on how these lessons translate to you in your life. Before we start this conversation, featuring NBA All-Star Klay Thompson, this show is brought to you by Uninterrupted and Chase. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast. It's free, it helps others find the show, and it notifies you every time we drop a new episode. And now, introducing one of the greatest shooters in NBA history, Klay Thompson. Since starting his professional career in 2011, Klay has become one of the most decorated players in the NBA. He's a three-time NBA champion with the Golden State Warriors, a five-time NBA All-Star, an Olympic gold medalist, a three-point contest champion, and not to mention, All-NBA and All-Defensive Team honoree. Today, you'll hear about Klay's experience growing up in an athletic household, his passion to help out communities in need, and how not being a top college recruit didn't stop him on his path to NBA stardom. Now let's get to it. Here's Maverick Carter in a conversation with Clay Thompson. I was just talking to Clay. Obviously, this is my first time in the building talking to you about how you feel being in this place, your heart still back in Oracle a little bit. Yeah. What do you think? Oh, uh, man, it's, it's pretty incredible to see, um, obviously, this building. Big piece of me still in Oakland, you know, just because of the uh, dynastic run we had there. But um, change is great. and. I know this is going to be a state-of-the-art facility, and I know it's just going to bring people, not only from the, the states, but all over the world, all going to come and want to experience this. So to know that was a big you know, part of building it, and the brand, I mean, the Warrior brand, it's just, uh, it motivates me to put on a show for the fans out here. As a kid growing up, I mean, mm -hmm. I played basketball all the way through college. You love to play. You probably still feel like a kid when you're out there just yeah. loving it. Especially when you get on fire, I know how your ass get just running up and down, letting it go. That's right. Um, you, uh, it's just a game, but obviously there's a business to basketball. Yeah. You obviously grew up with a dad who played pro ball. So as a kid, did you? When did you realize that basketball is actually a, there's a business side yeah. of this thing? <laughs> I mean, I, I I was so lucky to be able to you know chaperone my pops when he was. Um, doing the radio thing with the Lakers and the Blazers. I would go sit up with him and watch games at Staples and the Rose Garden. And um, I always thought it was just for love of the game, you know? You never really think of the free agency. You don't think of contracts. You don't think of... Media, broadcasting. Yeah, especially media. I mean, the media these days with social media, it's incredible. I mean, there's two sides to it. It sucks that our lives are just out there all the time, but at the same time, social media has grown 
the game of basketball so much. You know, you have access to highlights 24-7. And I first realized the business probably is when um, I was in the locker room in Sacramento at Arco So Arena. you didn't realize until you were a pro? Yeah, no. Because no. you obviously went to a big college. College is a business, yeah, too. Yeah, it is. But at that point, I was just happy to get a Pac-10 scholarship and get a stipend check every month. And I had my nice little life in Pullman. I thought that was the top. But um, I think I realized the harsh reality of the business to the NBA my rookie year. Um, I remember we were in the Arco Arena playing the Kings, and I remember Monte got traded, and he had to find out through SportsCenter. Because Twitter was big back then, but not like it is now. Yeah. So I felt for him because he given the Warriors eight great years, and it's just the unfortunate side is that that instant news cycle. He had to find out like that. I felt for him. And, I learned a lot playing with Monte and even the, the, just the free agency part of that team, like you're expendable. You're an asset to an NBA franchise, so you got to make the most of it while you're in it. And I've exactly. been blessed to be with one franchise. That's rare. But um, that was kind of the harsh reality of like, dang, we just traded our best player like that. They didn't even tell him. And um, especially for how much you give him the Warriors. So. And then how fast did you have to move on? Like you feel oh, bad, man, I had to, but you got to get on the yeah. bus and go uh, the plane and go fly. No, I, had, I, I was in the starting lineup that game. And I think <laughs> I went like, They're like, Monte, you're out, Clay, yeah, you're in. Which, which is crazy because that those are some huge shoes to fill. This man averaged like 25 a game for three years. And uh, you get kind of the backlash from fans like, why they trade him? You know, we got Andrew Bogey who's always hurt, blah, blah, blah. It's, so you got to kind of just take that in stride. and. I didn't have even that good of a game that night. I think it went like six for 20 for like 14 points. But just the fact that I was able to get 20 shots up was pretty nice to me. So I was knew uh, I had a lot, a lot left to prove for the Warriors at that time. And did you? When did you realize that it was probably because they got you that they, Monte was expendable because yeah, they had man, a future two guard? Uh, it took me. I mean, in that instance, I thought, dang, it was probably because of. Yeah, because, you know, they selected me and maybe wanted to give me room to play. And um, I was very grateful to be with that team my rookie year. Man, I had great vets, you know, Monte, Darrell Wright, uh, D. Lee. And um, those guys had eight, nine years in the league. So they kind of told me what the business side was like. But, um, yeah, I had to learn quickly. You know, that was, a, that was a good season for me. It was short. It was only six, six games during that lockout. But without that season, I don't think I would have been able to become the player I was because I was thrust into the spotlight right away playing big minutes. We were losing a lot, but that experience just to go out there and do my thing really gave me confidence. And going back to that word assets, and I always talk about this with business, that word is used a lot. And when you talk to people with a lot of money, mm -hmm. they never talk about making money. They talk about the assets they own. Like yeah. Golden State Warriors is an asset. Real estate is an asset. Mm -hmm. Art is an asset. But you talked about a player, a human being as an asset. Is that a word that a lot of NBA players talk about? Like, we're assets, that's a tradable asset, yeah. that's a young asset? Uh, I don't think we really talk about it because it's kind of taboo because we feel like we're more than just assets. We feel like we're people with feelings. But I mean, at the end of the day, Steve Kerr tells us that's why we make boatloads of money is to be able to just pick up our family and move on a whim. And um, that's the nature of the business. I mean, it's been like that since free agency came into play. I don't know when that was, but I mean, the, just the free agent period itself is like a whole nother part of the NBA people get so excited for. And um, yeah, we don't really talk about like, oh, you're an asset, I'm an asset, but we know uh, deep down like we're expendable and no one's above the franchise. So 
you know, there's a little selfishness there to make as much as you can and make the most of this window we have to play in the NBA because it really is a privilege. It's not a right. So for us to be here and play a ch child's game for a living, that in itself is like a win. Yeah, and I, I oftentimes think about that because you do hear it around like the draft a lot or free agency, mm -hmm. like they acquired some young assets. Yeah. That's an aging asset. That contract yeah. is an asset. That actually is crazy. But you think because an asset is a yeah. thing, not a person. It's like yeah. weird to think about people I mean, as yeah. assets. If you really think about it though, that starts in AAU basketball when you're like 14 years old. You know, there's shoe companies trying to get this prospect on, on his team or there's, you know, the collegiate teams who are signing multi-million dollar deals with these apparel companies. And so they, it's kind of like taboo to speak of, but, you know, they kind of want these big time shoe companies want to sh like shuttle these players into a program that will wear their gear. And then hopefully have a, they'll have the upper hand on signing him when he enters the draft. And there's only a handful of players who really experience that every year. You got to be a phenom, but I've seen it since I was you know, 14, 15, you see these kids who travel year round with their AU team or whatever, and there's always a, you know, method behind the madness. I mean, there's a reason these, you know, AU teams are, especially social media are so popular, whether they have an Adidas or a Nike across their chest, uh, there's bigger powers at play than you believe when you're a child, especially, you know, you're just out there for the love of the game, but um, I mean, yeah, there's these corporations who want to you know, make you the face of their company. Exactly. Now, going back to childhood, when did you and your brother start talking about playing pro ball? When were y'all like, yo, I want to be Oh, a man. Pro. I mean, since we, uh, shoot, probably fourth grade, fifth grade. I mean, I was obsessed with Slam Magazine at the time, so I would just cut out my favorite players, put it on the wall, and it's very lucky to have two brothers. I mean, we grew up beating each other up, whether it was in the, on the, Football They're field. They're both older than you? No, I'm middle. They're Trace is younger. Older, yeah. yeah, Mikey played professionally for Santa Cruz Warriors, played in Italy for a second, played for the Cavs for a little bit. And Trace uh, had a you know, minor league career, MLB career, playing for the White Sox, Dodgers. So we were very lucky to have you know, the resources we did. I mean, without my parents and giving us the opportunity to play, I would not be here. So I'm very thankful for that. But you guys as kids were like, we're going to be pros. Did your parents talk to you about being pro athletes, about, you know, you can do this, mm -hmm. or this is unreasonable, this is unreachable, or did they push you, like, you guys can do yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, we were lucky we had jeans on our side. I didn't know I was going to be six foot seven. I knew <laughs> I had a chance to be tall, but um, just seeing what my dad did for a living, I always wanted to play in the NBA. And I knew the opportunity was there for me if, um, I was kind of late bloomer, man. I didn't really grow to be this tall until I was about a freshman in college. So I might have been overlooked at times in the recruiting process, but I knew in the back of my mind that I could always shoot the ball and my athleticism and growth, they'll catch up, but just keep, you know, honing those skills that will last forever. And did your parents, obviously you grew up in Lake Oswego, then you guys moved. How old were you when you moved down to Southern California? I was 14. You were 14? Yeah. And Going from Lake Oswego to Southern California, that's not far distance-wise, but it's a big change in yeah. kind of the culture of living. Did that affect you a little bit? Uh, not really. I mean, I just love to play sports. We were lucky. We moved right next to a park with a basketball court, a field, so I'll be there every day. And it's funny, you know, being around Cleveland, you were with Kevin for the last few years, and me and Kevin played Little League together since we were like 
10 years old. Wow. And he was a phenom. He was one of those phenoms in high school who every shoe company was trying to get a piece of. So yeah, I saw I remember kinda, that. That was a big deal. Yeah, so I saw it through Kevin, like, what it was really like. Um, I was on his level, so I got to see, like, what, like, even him going to, I remember at the time, even him going to ABCD camp, which was obviously sponsored by Reebok, and he was a Nike athlete, and he's only 17 years old, and Nike kind of, I don't know if they cut him off, but, like, they yeah, just there was a war. I there remember was that. a war, and he was a teenager. It's, it's wild, like, just because he wanted to go face Greg Oden at a camp. And, uh, yeah, that's another side of the business you really never thought of. I was never in that position until I was about 25 years old to make that decision. And then um, I say the biggest cultural difference between Oregon and, and Southern California was playing three sports in Oregon. Like, you kind of did that. Um, you know, there was football season, basketball, baseball. But when you got to California, everything was so hyper-competitive because there was there's so many great players. And, I mean, I saw what a stage parent was really like. You know, there were so <laughs> many parents that wanted to see their son or their daughter be the next MJ or the next Mia Hamm. And, I thought that was kind of overkill at times, you know. I was like, you can't force a kid to do anything if he doesn't love it. Of course, of course. So, and did you, and growing up, did your parents ever teach you about money? Man, or um, talk to you about it? We would talk about it, but nothing would prepare me for what you're going through. The now? money I would come into, you know. Even when my dad played, they were making great money, like millions of dollars, but it wasn't the BRI it is now. I mean, it wasn't the salary cap it is now, so. Um, I remember him telling me like when Moses Malone signed for six million dollars for like a year in like the mid 80s and how that was like oh the NBA is over with they're giving this player six million a year like how can they even afford that so I just asked him about stories about contracts back then and like what provisions they got in their contracts <laughs> if like and I don't think uh, obviously it's a star driven league but um, the players have a great say nowadays and with the players association it's pretty cool to see how far you know we've come and how much that's tightened because I don't think it was there back when he played no. in the 80s. And do you, you think that's good for the league? You enjoy that part of it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's good for the league. I mean, if you are one of the more talented players, you're going to have a lot of pull, which is great because um, as NBA athletes, we're some of the most visible in the world, you know, seeing our faces. I mean, especially for some of my teammates, man, they can't go anywhere being, you know, 6'10", 7 feet. First question they've gotten their whole life is, do you play basketball? Exactly. So I like, I feel for them in that sense. But um, yeah, it's like we're you know walking advertisements in the end of the day. Exactly. Do you get that question everywhere you go? Like, uh, you must play basketball. You obviously you're overseas. Overseas, because you're gonna be in a nice hotel. I'm sure that. Yeah. I get it. I'm not, not nearly. I'm not nearly a six seven. I always just say, well, I'm just tall and black. But I'll get so, it. Yeah, right. I don't get it as bad as some of my teammates. Going back to college, tell us a little bit why you chose Washington State. Obviously, you grew up yeah. in Lake Oswego, went to Southern Cal, then went, went up to Pullman. I just loved the coach at the time, Tony Bennett, and um, the fact that he made it to the NBA and was a you know, five-level white guy from Wisconsin who had no athleticism and was all skill. That really, I attracted to that because like, he can get me to the point where I have the genes, the talent, he, I know if I work under his tutelage, like he can get me to the level I want to be at. And at the times, at that time, Washington State was really coming up. They made it to the Sweet 16. Um, I was obsessed with the Pac-10. Growing up on the West Coast, I wanted to play Pac-10 ball so badly. And I knew I could go in there and start as a freshman. That was huge for me. That experience going in there and playing at 18 was, was everything. And some people scratched their heads like, why Pullman? But 
it was nice to get out of the big city spotlights of Los Angeles and go experience like the college atmosphere. I'll, I'll never get that ever again if I want to play pro. So I'm very thankful I went to a place like Pullman that was close knit. And you were tall and skinny, but you always had that perfect jump shot. But going yeah. to Pullman, did you go there thinking I want to be a pro? Like, or, yeah. or did you have something to prove to everybody? I thought I went there knowing I wanted to go in the NBA. I knew it wouldn't be a one and done situation or even two. Um, like I said, I was a late bloomer, so I had to even grow more in my body to be ready for the physicality of the NBA. But I knew if I went and made noise in the Pac-10, um, you're definitely going to get a look. So that was always in the back of my head. And did you have something to prove to yourself? Did you want to prove to yourself that I could ball on, on any level? 100%. And I wanted to prove, you know, the schools, the local schools that didn't recruit me wrong. I just wanted to go there and... And I have a lot of ties to Washington. It's close to Portland. My family was able to come out and see me play all the time. It's not like we got great national coverage in Pullman, but I knew uh, with you know the internet these days, like if you're the, if you got the talent, the NBA scouts will find you. Of course. What school did you want to go to? If you could have picked, what was your dream? Man, uh, my dream school is probably like UCLA. UCLA. I mean, the tradition there. Uh, so did you try and bust their ass every time you played them? I did. I did. <laughs> but, uh, did you have any great games against them? I had a few. I mean, my freshman year, I remember we went to Pauley Pavilion and won, and that was the second time in the history of wow. Washington State that we won at Pauley. So wow. that was like one of my favorite wins ever. And I know I was, I was going against Drew Holiday, who's no slouch himself. He was like the number two player in the country coming out of high school. And it just felt good to, you know, beat UCLA, the team that kind of overlooked me. and. That was a great win. I think we were 1-50 up to that point. So after wow. that night, we were 2-50. It <laughs> felt good. There is nothing quite like a great win over a team that underestimates your talent and skill. For Clay, he was just getting started. So why did he decide to skip the rest of his college career? We'll get into that in just a bit. But first, and we're back. Let's continue this conversation between Maverick Carter and Clay Thompson. And in college, you just kept getting better and better mm. and better and better. And you decided to leave and skip your, that final year of college. Tell us, mm. what was that like, thinking through that? Was that your decision? Yeah. Did you talk to family? Was it I based on family, money? I that was, that was definitely my decision. Money obviously had a factor, because if you're a first round, surefire first round pick, um, that's hard to turn down. I mean, that's millions of dollars you're gonna come into, and the opportunity, the guaranteed, which is huge, and the opportunity to play for an NBA franchise, I mean, I wasn't really ready for the, the schedule. I don't think any rookie is. Your life isn't just academics and sport anymore. It's all sports, which you're professional now. So, uh, I mean, my rookie year was unique because it was the lockout year, so it was condensed. But I mean, 66 games in four and a half months is ridiculous, you know? So, crazy. Uh, made me stronger, but um, I just knew the chance to be a first round pick was too great to pass up. Exactly. and. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we actually just had the governor of California on the shop. I saw that. It was amazing. What, yeah, thank you. What did you think yeah. about that, the fair act to play, the fair to play role? Finally. I mean, <laughs> can't make money off your likeness. I mean, that's the most non-American thing I've ever heard. You know, like, these schools are profiting, especially the big-time schools. When you think of college football, the SEC, the Big Ten, you think of ACC basketball. And then you see these college coaches who, you know, are getting paid millions of dollars a year and you can't pay your labor force which is the players or even give them a little trust fund when they leave 
that's just crazy to me, especially, you know, when you see the Texas football network makes like $100 million a year. And yes, you get a great education, you get your degree, you get a chance to network, but man, it's a, it's a, our sport takes it. There's nothing really amateur about playing big time college sports because it reminds me of more of a EuroLeague season. You only have like 35 regular games, but that, once you get to the NCAA tournament and you see, you know, ESPN signing billion dollar deals, you're like, well, I'm only getting a stipend check this much. It just, <laughs> it's kind of backwards, but I was very proud of you guys for doing that. Now, like, player at, you know, a big time player at UCLA, if he's from the city of Los Angeles, can go hold a camp in his inner city and get paid for it, which is amazing. You couldn't do that back in the day, and that's sweet. And you're obviously, everything you do from business and sponsorship-wise is very specific mm -hmm. and deliberate to you, as you said. You kind of do your own thing. By the way, my yeah. favorite thing I've ever seen you is the, the interview in New York on the local news station. I thought that oh, was yeah. just hilarious. Just walking down the street and randomly there's Clay Thompson yeah, I mean, well, that on was the a New dream. York local yeah. news station. I mean, I just thought about when I was like 14. If I would have been able to get on TV, that was like a dream. So I was like, <laughs> I'll give you this interview. It's pretty sweet. You know? Where were you headed, by the way, that day? I was just taking a walk in the park. It was nice, you know, day in New York. City. New York and that's one of the cities I love to go to when we're on the road and just nice to get outside and get, you know, get the pressure. city feel. Like, so yeah. all your deals are very specific to who you are. How do you think about overall your whole business catalog yeah. of deals and sponsorships that you choose? Which companies do you look for? Which do you stay away from? Um, I mean, it's hard, man. I'm just getting into the world of investing. You know, it's hard to, when, you know, we come to this money especially in Sil New York, Silicon Valley. Right here, exactly. Everyone thinks it's so easy, like, oh, just invest in startups or venture capital. I'm like, okay, but where do I do that? You yeah. know, it's like, it's much more difficult than it sounds. You know, you can't just put your money in a microwave and triple it like that, you know? <laughs> exactly. So from, and especially seeing, um, with my teammates, they're very successful and they've branched into the tech world. But for me, um, I'm very lucky to have a team around me. And I just, you know, anything that I want to get into, I kind of try to refer back to what I know best, and that's basketball. Smart. So my financial team, I have um, my financial advisor, my agent. And then what's really nice is we can lean on the NBA PA, to, which nice. is great, to like vet any bad business there is, you know? So if it passes through them, and my financial advisor is something I really believe in, then I get excited for it. But back in the day, especially when I was in my first couple years, like I was trying to grab any deal I could get, you know? Really? Just yeah, just because With I was no guidance, just going to have no uh, one helping you? Little guidance, but it was kind of short-sighted to think about it, you know, just like get the money, post it on Instagram, and it might have been something I never believed in, whether it was a sports drink or a wristband or I don't know. Uh, you were doing that just like, I just want checks. I just, I just want, want all the money I can get, you know, yeah. instead of like thinking like a real businessman, get some equity, you know, push a product you really believe in, a healthy long product, term, long term. Yeah. yeah and uh, you just, but you don't think like that when you're 22, 23, because it's a lot of money. But now that I've gotten older and I've, you know, won a lot of basketball games and done my part there, it's easier to, you know, network, it's easier to meet people, especially out here who do big things in the tech world or real estate or whatever it is, is because everyone, at the end of the day, wants to be a winner. And it's easy to attach yourself to a winner because that usually means you work really hard and you're a master of your craft. So I still got a long, long way to go in the world of investing, but um, I feel like I'm just getting started. And when you were young, 
was there, did you ever think about time versus money? Like, okay, this is gonna take me a certain amount of time. Because for yeah. you, you were making money, but it took you time. You had to show yeah. up, you had to take pictures, you had to shoot a commercial, whatever. Honestly, I and is it yeah. worth the money? Did you balance those two things? I didn't really until we started like playing until June. And like, <laughs> yeah, that's a whole different time. beast. My goodness, like trying to manage 100 games a year and then have the time to like go mingle is, is tough, man. So first and foremost for me was invest in your health, your well-being, because I actually, you know, when I heard LeBron invest a million dollars in his body a year, that makes complete sense. You can invest a million to make 80, 90, whatever it is. That's easy decision. And that comes first and foremost. And then just um, anything I believe in, you know, I'm a huge chess player. I'm not the best, but I just, I really love to play, get that mental workout. Yep. And I love, I just, you know, got my first boat, so I love to get on the water. Oh, nice. So those are two things I really want to like grow with, whether it's playing with the youth in chess or, you know, the newest advanced nautical company, just stuff like that, you know. Um, you don't have to invest just to like make a profit, but I've learned to invest. We have the opportunity now to invest in what we believe in, so. Of course. Just stuff I really have interest in outside of basketball. And did, did just age change that, or did you, when you started making a lot more money, change yeah, that? Yeah, honestly, when I made a lot more money. Like, when I was on my rookie deal, I just wanted as much as I get, and I wanted to save as much as I could get, you know? So, but when I you know, start having financial freedom, um, it's amazing, man. And you always have to have a good team around you because I did not, you know, go to college, become a savvy venture capitalist. I went there to <laughs> hold my basketball skills. And um, you got to be humble, too. I mean, there's so many great people out here who've done amazing things, and they're so welcoming to us to shadow them at work, you know, take a business trip with them. You just got to be open ears and, and know, like, we're still at the grassroots stages of, like, the knowledge of investing. Of course. And to, as you talk about the team around you, agent, financial advisor. Talk a little bit about who they are and how did you pick them? Who helped you? Because yeah. coming out of college, you don't know anybody. How do you pick, how do you? That's funny, my first agent you? was actually, I had no choice. My dad was like, yo, I play with Bill du I play with this man in college, you go in there. And I was like, I saw his track record and I was like, great. I mean, he's got some big time You didn't players, even interview anyone fans. else? No need at the time, because my, I, I'm 21 years old. Like my dad's word is it's everything, yeah, you know? And um, so I didn't have to do that. So, but financial advisor, I mean, you're, I would tell young kids, you have all the power. You're going you're gonna to come into an industry where if you're lucky, you have a 15-year window, if you're very lucky, to make a ridiculous amount of money. So you're an asset to all these firms. And as, interview as many as you want, you know, and look for strong ethics. That, that's what's important to me. I mean, I don't want to just be a springboard for a money-making opportunity. I want, like, to know your family. I want to be a like as close as a family member as I can because we're in it together. And um, it's just a vetting process that it's hard to understand when you're 21 and especially coming into first generation of wealth for so many of these guys, but we're very lucky to have a great player association. So they will do all the, all the due diligence for you. And that's huge because you don't wanna, um, yeah, you don't wanna put your money in the wrong places. Of course, and then, Obviously, you had to move on from Bill. At a young age, mm -hmm. you had to make a tough decision of, this is a guy who's helped me to this point, mm -hmm. who my father picked me with, but it's not, it's hard to fire somebody or move on from somebody yeah. at a tough age. What was that process like? 
wasn't fun because, I mean, you build this chemistry with someone and, um, yeah, they become, like I said, like family. But, um, I mean, differences come up, whether it's how your business is handled, where your brand's going. Um, you just got to keep it professional. I mean... Because you entrusted this person to do the, all those things exactly, for you. And, and you might have, did you grow into think differently than you did when you first signed, came oh out? Oh yeah, oh yeah, I was thinking short term. Like I just want to get as much cash as I can, I'll throw whatever I can on the internet, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, whatever. Instead of, you know, really taking the time to just focus on winning, focus on being a great teammate, because that brand will take care of itself if you just do those things. And uh, it's rare any athlete ever sticks with one agent, I think, their whole career. I think. Why is that you Because um, I think you get to a point where, I'm not going to say agent isn't needed, but you get to a point where you can have a lawyer, NBA Player Association look over deals. But you definitely have to have a middleman in your corner. You can't just go to the bargaining table yourself. Like, that's not very smart. And it's always nice to have a young or a professional with you. I of mean. Course. And how did you go about the process of finding a new agent and land on the one that you um, had? Um, shoot, that is a good question. I mean, looking at other people, other players' brands, especially at, like my level and seeing, you know, what they're making off the court, what their shoe company's doing for them, what they're doing with charity, their charitable, you know, contributions. So it's like so many factors, not just like, oh, can you get me this deal? I need a max deal, but like, especially life outside of basketball. You know, I want to have a relationship with my agent until my kids graduate college because I want to still, you know, do things. I still have so many interests beyond playing when my playing days are over. And then you don't want someone who's just going to kind of forget about you when you hang that jersey up because we still have another half life to live. So there's a big trust you got to build. Exactly. Not just blind trust either. You got to really, you know, learn these people's ethics and do your research on them because you can't just put blind trust in anybody. That's how you, you know, find it yourself in a big trouble. Hiring and firing anybody is tough, let alone when they're family and friends. For me, those processes are very, very closely connected. Anytime I'm hiring somebody, of course I want to give those opportunities to people who are close to me and people I care about. But the number one thing to always consider is, are they qualified and do they understand the level of commitment it's going to take? Now, anyone who considers themselves a friend of mine or even family, they understand the standard that I set for myself. And for people who work for me and that are tied to my business and my trajectory, I set that same standard for them. So at the end of the day, when the firing process comes or I have to make that tough decision to let somebody go, I tried to lay out at the very beginning what to expect. If you lay that out as clear as day at the beginning, at the end, it's hard to argue. So anyone who's been close to me that I've had to let go, we still have an incredible relationship because coming from sports as a receiver, when I got cut from teams, nine times out of 10, I knew it was coming because the standard and the expectations were set. So if you keep that same criteria with the people around you, I think it makes things transparent. All right, let's get back to this conversation with Clay Thompson. You guys are in the heart of Silicon Valley. A lot of your teammates are doing this, are doing that, and have shoe deals, are investing, starting this company. Is there a lot of chatter in you guys' locker room about business and opportunities and investing as young, mostly African-American men? Is that a conversation going on in the locker room? Definitely, and um, it definitely goes on, whether it's investing in wine, 
tech, you know, a soccer franchise. We got so many guys who have a global brand, whether it's Steph, Draymond. I mean, Andre's done incredible things in Silicon Valley. So uh, definitely the chatter goes on. Um, it's kind of tougher during the season just because, you know, you want to you want to be all in to win a championship, but we definitely like brainstorm ideas off each other, and um, we could, we should probably invest more together because group <laughs> economics is a real powerful thing. But, of course, but um, we definitely have each other's back, and um, yeah, like you said, as young African American men, there's a there's a void there in the tech industry, and so many guys are trying to bring brothers with them behind, which is so cool and. There's been so many guys in Silicon Valley who are so open to that and want to diversify the field. It's so cool, and as uh, you know, the face of uh, the black community, whatever you want to call it, it's pretty cool to show, especially young kids. Like, man, you want to develop yourself as a whole, not just you know, just basketball 24/7. Because exactly. that ball can take you to incredible heights, but um, you gotta grow as a person. Because I mean, there's so many, so much opportunity out there. Exactly. Now you're on your third. This is your third contract, right? Yep. This is your third one. Obviously, they've gotten bigger as you've went. Hopefully, they keep going. Hopefully, mm -hmm. you have one or two more. That'd be nice. Big ones left. That would be great. Mm -hmm. I think you got it. <laughs> um, but what was that, the transition like from going from Pullman to arriving in uh, the Bay Area? And then all of a sudden, you just dropped, and now you're to your point. You're now no longer an amateur slash collegiate athlete. You're a professional athlete, and they, someone hands you a check. Mm -hmm. Tell us what that transition was like and what was that first big check you got? And what, what, what did you think? What would you do with it? Yeah. I mean, I still remember the number when I saw that check and it was like incredible. I mean, what especially at 21. Oh man, I don't I think it was like my first check in the NBA. I think it was like, I hate to even put that. It makes me uncomfortable to talk about it, but I think it was 35,000. That was like, more money than I can ever think of. And, <laughs> you know, you just like try to keep it simple, whether it's, you know, budgeting is huge, yep. obviously, but you just have your rent and you try not to overspend on nice things. You know, I got my first purchase on my pool table. So I, I still have that to this day. You still have the first pool table? Oh yeah, I still got my billiards table. That was my first purchase. And um, I've learned like not to, try not buy like frivolous things that or material and that just, you know, they look great, they might bring you happiness for a while, but I just love life experience. You know, I love to travel. I love, the. I, love, I grew up in Oregon, so I love being the outdoors. And those are two things, like, when I saw that first check, like I was able to spend money on, like, man, I could, in the off season, I can go here, I can do this hike, I can do that. So I learned to just spend money on stuff that makes me happy, because I was, it's not like that money made me happy. It was great to see that check, but I lived such a great life in Pullman at the time on my $1,100 a month stipend. That went so far in Pullman, man. I could get as much Taco Del Mar as I wanted. I could, <laughs> I could get, I could go to Target and have a field day. Um, so I learned that just wealth is a mindset, man. If you have the relationships and the experiences around you, those are priceless, you know? It's better than any car you can get, any big house. It's just about those relationships to me. And did you make any mistakes? Buy anything uh, silly or stupid? Yeah, I made some mistakes like hoarding. You know, I would buy stuff, I, especially with the clothes, man. Like the NBA <laughs> styles, it's like there's this, you know, peer pressure that you gotta keep up. And I mean, I would just have a full closet and I would only wear about 5% of the closet. And I'm like, 
what am I gonna do with all these extra cold clothes, man? So I had these like hoarding tendencies that I had to rid and it took some time, but, and yeah, just be stuff like that. That's like not really gonna last, whether it's clothes or, oh, what also killed me for a while was the team poker game. I mean, <laughs> we had some sharks on the, Really? Know, yeah, we had some How sharks How did you guys play? Every road trip and it's like. On the plane or in the hotel? On the plane, you know, the plane. So, I mean, it's a great way to build camaraderie, but of course, um, it's tough to do on your rookie deal, especially when you're playing guys who've been in the league for like eight, nine years, but <laughs> that competitive drive comes in, especially with poker, you know, it's such like an emotional game. It's a total emotional game. And it's not really by luck, you know, it's really like a skill game, which I had to learn the hard way, but um, just trying to like limit my, like if I'm not going to buy in more than once. If I got to buy in more than once, then um, I'm, I'm, when I have to tell my financial advisor what happened, it's not, it's not good. It's did like you buy him? Office. And when you were a rookie, did you get caught buying in more than once a couple of times? Uh, a few times, especially like I'm like my second and third year. Um, yeah, I was a very reactionary poker player, so I've got much better, but that was one of my faults, man. I just, I love playing cards. I'm a card player, so, too. Yeah, kind of. Did you guys have some, who loss. was the Sharks? Who were the best players? Andrew Bogut was phenomenal. Really? Was a really? Good player. <laughs> really? Uh, Draymond plays the exact same way he does in the court, just <laughs> talks a lot of trash and really tries to like get in your head. You know, he, you couldn't, he, he wouldn't even know what he has in his hand, but he'll just be reckless with it. And just talking a lot of work, shit, Yeah, right? talking a lot of mess. D. Lee was solid. Um, Jonas Drevko is a good player. But me and Steph were kind of like the fish for a while in the poker game. So, uh, <laughs> you know the rule in poker, by the way, right? There's a lot of rules, but what's your Well, rule? the main rule is if you look around the table, mm -hmm. if you can't find the sucker, you're the sucker. That's true. That you was, know that, right? Yeah. That, so maybe you saw Steph there, and you're like, well, I'm not the sucker. Steph's the sucker. I know. If you definitely ask everyone on the team, they definitely point their finger at me. But <laughs> I'm getting better. You guys still play, by the way? Yeah, we still play. We still, the, the game still goes on, and... Dealer's choice, you know, it could be Omaha, Hold'em. Draymond always talks about dominoes, which I'm not a dominoes player. You play dominoes? I play, I play a little dominoes, He talks yeah. a lot of trends. He's good at dominoes. He's, he seems to be really, is he yeah. really that good, or is he just talking shit? No, he's pretty good. Is he really? Yeah. That's funny, that's actually very funny. Yeah. What's the, um, for you now, you've obviously- That's just, funny, actually, going back on dominoes. I remember this past summer, um, Draymond came over the day after I tore my ACL game six. This man didn't let me win one game of dominoes. <laughs> Not a freaking torn out. He came me. over I was like, your house. Oh, man, can I win one and game? Still beat you in every yeah, game. Yeah, on five, and I still have an outstanding debt from that. But uh, <laughs> that hurt, man. That guy's ruthless. I'm there on crutches, and he still won't even let me get a win. I thought you were gonna say he came over and let you beat him all Not day. Not once, but that's all right. Not once. He wanted to let you know, even though you're down, you still can't beat me. Yeah. That's funny. That's what makes him what he is. And obviously this summer you signed a big deal, and this was your second time signing a new contract. Did you approach this free agency, this going into a new contract, different than you did the first time? Uh, honestly, not really, man. I, I wanted to stay with the Warriors, even on my first, the deal I did last time. I just think the opportunity to stay with one franchise and whatever sport you play is so cool, and what a place to play in, you know, in San Francisco. So it would have been tough for me to leave, honestly. But you got to obviously do your due diligence and see what else is out there. But um, I mean, if the Warriors were to come with that max deal, it was hard for me to look past that, especially knowing I was here, you know, before it was sweet. You know, exactly. I was here when we won 23 games. Um, 
we were not the darlings of the NBA or the villains. We were just the team in Oakland. So to now be a huge, you know, draw in San Francisco, it uh, makes me appreciate the process so much more and build up such a great thing with the fan base that would have been hard to replicate anywhere else. So I just knew I had to control what I can control and obviously go in with the open mind, but knowing like I want to stay here in the back of my, my Got heart. It. And even though obviously you signed the second contract for you, you're obviously very smart and thoughtful. Is it hard to splurge on yourself? Like if you want something, you obviously think everything yeah, through all the time. Yeah, I'm lucky though, I'm pretty simple, man. My tastes aren't that extravagant. I don't like to collect cars. I mean, I don't like- What kind of car you drive? Uh, I drive a Audi Q8, but nice. I also have a Mercedes. I've had it for like five years though. So that's Smart. like my baby. But I did splurge on a boat. I mean, I'm so, I love- But the, the boat water. is a tough, that's a, that's a big splurge. I know, but it wasn't anything crazy. It was like the, it was like buying a sports car, but I, I know I'm gonna get my use out of it just because it's like the water brings me peace. And Got it. being able to fish, you know, especially with my foundation now, I'm gonna have the ability to take kids out to go fishing who never had that opportunity before, yeah. which is really cool to me. And I just think it's like therapeutic to be out there on the water. So that was probably my biggest splurge with my contract is me buying my boat. And I know everyone says the hap at least I've been told the happiest day of your life is the day you buy the boat. And the happiest day is the day you return it. So, <laughs> but uh, that's something I, I want to grow, especially getting you know more young kids of color in the in the, the, fishing, in, the yeah. in the boating industry is so cool. And I have some great ideas for this season, what to do with that thing, whether it's to commute kids from Oakland over to the San Francisco oh, to the awesome. games. It's uh, it's just gonna open up my whole new world. So I could splurge on that because it's gonna bring me so many great experiences. As far as like clothes and cars, those are great, but at the end of the day, they only get you from point A to point B. I want something that's gonna make me happy from, you know, Got every it. day. And you obviously, you just had the second annual Thompson Family Foundation Charity mm -hmm. Golf event. Tell me a little bit about the foundation. Why'd you start it? What yeah. do you wanna do with it? Um, I just, this is something I wanna do for the rest of my life, you know? Um, we're in such a great position to be public figures, whether we like it or, lot, or not, and it was easy to think of the Bahamas because my dad came from the Bahamas, my grandfather's from there, my whole father's side is from there. And I was so lucky to be able to visit Nassau since I was a kid. So that was always a special place in my heart. And we hold a kids camp there every summer with Jeff Rogers. It's so fun to go down there and just hang out with the kids. And um, at the end of the day, it's still a third world country. You know, as, as beautiful as it is, there's still so many people in need especially after Hurricane Dorian, man, it was really tough to hear the firsthand accounts of what was happening. And um, as a Bahamian, you know, as one of the more famous Bahamians, I feel I have to speak up, I have to do something, especially if people see how much money we make, you gotta do something, like yep. you gotta give back to the community. And that's something I'll be doing every summer, is um, going down there, whether it's getting them resources just to go to school or you know, a kitchen stove or the opportunity to play basketball and maybe get a D3, D2 scholarship one day and just pass on the knowledge I know and just spend time with these people because Bahamas is so close to my heart and just being able to do stuff in the Bay as well, you know, whether it's in Oakland or San Francisco, San Jose, there's so many kids that look up to us and with the Family Foundation, we're gonna be able to put on events that will, you know, hopefully be in the community for a long time. And you um, obviously are, now, as we were talking in the back, um, starting your ninth year, right? Mm -hmm. So, 
you got a long way to play. You still got a lot to play, but you've already, a lot of your playing days are behind you, but you still got a long way to go. Do you or have you already started thinking about what is Clay Thompson's life? Who is Clay yeah. Thompson past the Golden oh, State Warriors, man. past the NBA? Do you think about it yet? I do, um, especially as you approach 30. You know, you see the other side, like, <laughs> when you're in your mid-20s, you don't think about that at all. I used to tell people, like, what are you going to, everyone asked me, what are you going to do after your career? I was like, I don't know, golf. But uh, <laughs> I, I mean, obviously want to work with the foundation. Um, I'd love to be around the NBA, whether it's, Consulting. I don't know if I could coach, man. That's a lot of stress. I feel for Steve. <laughs> I don't know if I can coach, but just to see what my boy Zaza is doing now, man. He was a. I mean, he's still with us, which is great. I was so happy to see him. Just it's not, it's not like Zaza was a Hall of Famer, but he just was a great pro. He was a great teammate for 16 years, and he got a job right away. That's what just building relationships will do for you. So you never know who you're gonna meet, who's gonna be at top when you're done playing. So I always think about that stuff. Obviously, you want to get into, you know, whatever business I'm in at the time, but hopefully I'll have a family as well, you know. It'd be nice to raise some children, so <laughs> that'd be nice, but uh, just little stuff like that, whatever I interest in, whether it's, you know, fishing or the family foundation, I got a lot of ideas, and that's the beauty of our game. It could, you can retire young, and if you save your money and if you manage it well, you can do whatever you want when you're done playing. Of course, and you'll obviously be known as a champion I think for sure a Hall of Famer, one of the greatest shooters to ever live, if not the greatest. But is there something else you want to be known for besides that? Have you thought about that? Like what yeah. does, what would Honestly, play? Yeah, no one gets overlooked to me too much is what your boy LeBron has done for Akron. It's, it's pretty incredible. I've never really seen many athletes do that. Obviously, it's hard to make the money that man does, but you can still make a huge impact in the community you grew up in or you played in. So I just want to be, when I'm done playing, which is going to be hopefully 10 years from now, someone who gave back to the city of Oakland and San Francisco, who did a lot of, you know, philanthropic work in the Bahamas. I just don't want to be known for being a great shooter. I want to be known as someone who was out there in the town and who was easy to talk to, who helped a lot of kids, you know, reach the level they wanted to get to, whether it was playing Division One basketball or just getting have ability to go to JUCO or even a four-year college. Um, and I'm just in the grassroots stages with that, with my foundation or my family foundation, and that just motivates me to just, you know, lead by example. I mean, I remember idolizing Kobe Bryant as a kid, and now to be playing his same position, you know, in the California still, that um, that's incredible to me. So I'm not gonna say I'm gonna build a school like LeBron, but I'd love to have a great project like Absolutely. that someday, because. It's pretty amazing what he did. That's greater than any championship he ever won or yeah. any MVP. That's gonna help out so many kids and generations to come. It's, uh, that's amazing. That's all for this episode of Needing Though the Podcast presented by Uninterrupted and Chase. Come back next week to dive into another great conversation. But until then, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and submit a review wherever you listen to your shows. Much appreciation to our partners for this show, Chase. Head over to Chase.com to see what Chase has to offer. Our executive producers are myself, T.D. St. Matthew Daniel, and Ben Adair. And I'm Andrew Hawkins, a.k.a. Hawk, telling you what a wise man always told me. A penny saved is a penny earned.